Anyway, perverts, as Allison puts it, <laughs> you started it. Welcome to episode 38 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's Managing Editor. And I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm Layla McNeil, the other co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the history of sex research. Um, a topic that is surprisingly unsexy at times, though that will not stop us from making jokes like 13-year-old boys, uh, or girls, <laughs> honestly, uh, about everything. Um, so it's still gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, um, people have been having sex for time immemoria, a phrase that historians hate, but is actually accurate in this instance. <laughs> Possibly only this instance. Um... And of course, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the ways that for centuries, sex was connected to both morals and health. And if you look back, especially on our episode about bonkers things that men have said about women's bodies, you'll find that a lot of weird diseases we mentioned are directly related to both how much and the kind of sex women are having. Uh, so everything from the wandering womb to hysteria, uh, supposedly, uh, according to, you know, medieval doctors, could be cured by having the right kind of sex, which is, of course, the kind of sex that got you pregnant. Today, the scientific study of sex is called sexology. I used to think that was fake. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it could be. It sounds like a fake word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sexologists are still hung up on what really counts as healthy sex or morally correct sex, even if they're unlikely now to sort of put it explicitly that way. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it is important to remember that the struggle to understand sex isn't new and to remember that like all scientific and social studies, the answers are influenced by the particulars of people's experiences with the world. So let's get to it. Like most scientific fields, it's hard to pinpoint the exact beginning of sexology, but most people place it in the 1890s at the tail end of the Victorian period. So to get us started, let's talk a bit about Victorians and sex. What did Victorians think about getting it on, and particularly, how did they understand women's sexual desires? And despite popular understandings, people in the 19th century were not a bunch of prudes, and while men and women didn't speak as freely about sex as we do today, there's enough writing out there by both medical professionals and everyday people to make it pretty clear that sex was an important part of most people's lives. Of course, there were certainly people who were squeamish about sex and who looked down on the idea of women as sexual beings. For example, according to Dr. William Acton, who wrote Functions and Disorders of the Reproductive Organs in 1875, Quote, the majority of women, happily for them, are not very much troubled with sexual feeling of any kind. What men are habitually, women are only exceptionally. End quote. That sounds right to me. I, 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 love, I love in that that it's both like, 
women don't care about sex, and thank goodness, because men care too much <laughs> about sex. Like, he's just uncomfortable with sex for everyone, I feel like. Um, but Acton um, is kind of the exception that proves the rule in some ways. Uh, so in, in the article, What Ought to Be and What Was Women's Sexuality in the 19th Century, historian Carl Degler notes that uh, lots of medical professionals said that women like men required sexual release to be happy, um, while, of course, making it clear that that should only happen within marriage. Two men. Two men, yes. Yes, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the most popular sex and marriage guides of the 19th century was Dr. George Nafee's uh, The Physical Life of Women, Advice to the Maiden Wife and Mother. Um, that sounds like exactly the type of person that I would take advice from about I know, right. <laughs> yeah. George Nafee. George Nafee, yeah, who who talks about maiden wives and mothers. Um, the only kinds of women there are, oh, maiden wives and mothers. 100%, no question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but his opinion of women's sexuality was markedly different from Acton's in, in some ways. Um, he claimed that when it came to sexual interest, quote, for the vast, vast majority of women, sexual appetite is as moderate as all other appetites, end quote. Um, he also said that wives who, quote, plume themselves on their repugnance or their distaste for the conjugal obligation, end quote, were a disgrace to womanhood. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he, he had no time for prudes, which certainly I can imagine was also used against women, but uh, it is a hilarious quote. <laughs> Plume themselves, just ostentatiously buttoning up the extremely high collar of your very right. modest dress. Right. <laughs> Nobody's ever been in here. <laughs> <laughs> so as that last quote might suggest, this interest in women's sexuality didn't mean these doctors were particularly progressive. Most doctors considered it unhealthy to masturbate or have sex focused on clitoral stimulation. Most of them also disapproved of any and all contraceptive practices. Um, even pulling out was frowned upon, though the reason that doctors tended to give may actually surprise you. They said that uh, coitus interruptus was bad for women because it would leave them unsatisfied and they would wander around in a cloud of sexual frustration. <laughs> It's like blue balls, but for women. <laughs> they literally, so there are literally descriptions where it's essentially like, yeah, women will get blue balls if uh, you pull out. <gasps> I like the wander around in a cloud of sexual <laughs> frustration. I told that, so uh, for, for the first um, of what I'm sure will be many tangents into uh, what is wrong with straight people and their definition of sex, I told this fact to my wife and she just kind of looked at me. And she went, oh, straight people, right. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing to take away from all of this is that in the 19th century, doctors were very interested in ensuring that heterosexual married couples were having mutually enjoyable missionary position sex. Essentially, sex was considered valuable for women, but only if it was the correct kind of sex. So this is the world that the first sort of professional sexologists are walking into. Many people consider English physician Havelock Ellis to be the first of these modern sexologists. 
1896, he published the first of 10 volumes of his research and opinions on human sexuality. Notably, that volume was focused on homosexuality, mostly male homosexuality, and argued that homosexuality was a natural congenital sexual variant found all across the animal kingdom and that it should not be prosecuted or deemed immoral. And lest our straight cis men listening to this feel like the Victorians forgot about them, (laughs) Ellis has your back. (laughs) He actually had a lot to say about male sexuality. He was significantly less interested in women. In his later writing, he did insist that women were just as sexual as men, while also explaining that women's approach to sex was naturally more passive. He wrote that women's sexual interest was mysterious, elusive, and complex, while men's was, quote, predominantly open and aggressive. (laughs) He even connected this supposed passivity to women's natural modesty and emphasized that courtship was important because, essentially, Women needed time to warm up to male partners. (laughs) To be totally fair to Ellis, he did encourage slightly more variety in the bedroom, even going so far as to suggest that couples engage in cunnilingus. (gasps) Gasp. But (laughs) in a lot of ways, his opinions about women's sexuality line up pretty well with what uh, his predecessors had said. Uh, So even if you haven't heard of Havelock Ellis, um, you have probably heard of Sigmund Freud. Uh, All of us have, even if we wish we hadn't. Um, Today, it can be easy to make jokes about his theories like the Oedipal complex and penis envy, um, but it is helpful (laughs) to remember... (laughs) Jesus. It is helpful to remember that he saw himself as a scientist Uh, And he did have some important ideas about sexuality and desire. Uh, So in her book, Diagnosing Desire, Biopolitics and Femininity in the 21st Century, sociologist Alison Spurgis lays out both the positive and the negative impact uh, Freud and his research had on society's beliefs about women's sexuality. On the one hand, he was very interested in the way socialization and trauma could affect how people understood their desires, uh, which was valuable both at the time and I think continues to be valuable. On the other hand, he had some pretty crappy things to say about what constituted natural or healthy desire in women. Uh, So to get ready for the podcast, I spoke to Allison about her research, uh, and I'll just play a clip from that interview to explain what she said about one of Freud's bad ideas. So one thing that was um, pretty important for Freud is that he thought that females would go through these different stages, that female children had the capacity to have kind of like a spontaneous, active desire um, very early on. It was very kind of clitorally um, animated. (laughs) And then it would eventually, in the mature female, become vaginal. And and that, that was kind of attached to this like passivity um, of course, it's, it ends up being all about, you know, motherhood and maternality. So, yeah, so he's just kind of a mixed bag. Both Freud and Ellis conducted research by doing in-depth case studies on their patients. But in the early 20th century, there was also an effort to study people's sexual behaviors in a broader statistical way by surveying them. We want to highlight one of these surveys in particular, which was published in 1929 called Factors in the Sex Life of 2200 Women. It was conducted 
by Catherine Bement Davis, who was interested in finding out about, quote, the sex life of normal women. And by normal, Davis meant white, upper class, educated women, of course. Um, and because of her narrow focus, Davis's survey isn't necessarily interesting if you're trying to understand what the actually average woman actually thought about sex at the time. But it is interesting if you want to know what researchers cared about. So by focusing on so-called normal women, Davis demonstrated, purposefully or not, that proper, well-educated, well-married ladies did in fact have opinions about sex. And among other things, the survey found that 60% of unmarried women and 40% of married women masturbated, and that 40% of all women found that sex was essential for, quote, complete physical and mental health, and 85% believed that sex for pleasure was justified. <laughs> I actually am surprised at the 85% yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. That was, I mean... <laughs> like this dirty little secret that these like housewives were keeping to themselves or something. I don't know. Yeah. The word <laughs> justified is doing a lot of work. <laughs> the, so the question was specifically, this is part of like an attempt, I admit, to like shoehorn that into the sentence. But the question is technically, is it justified to have sex for reasons other than procreation? Mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but that basically means is it okay to have sex for fun so you know but it's yeah. written in this hilarious like double negative way that i think is also doing a lot of work <laughs> yeah yeah is it <laughs> yeah is it acceptable or is it something you can defend so surveys like this one or like the kinsey reports of the 1940s and 50s made a big cultural splash but it was a very different set of sex researchers who really ended up influencing the scientific study of sex. Instead of asking people what kind of sex they liked or how they responded to sex, <laughs> they decided to study people having sex in labs, which I don't know what gets you guys going. <laughs> having sex in a lab and people watching. It, yeah. Who I... This is this is another thing that I kind of love about uh, Bonk, uh, the Mary Roach book, uh, which I read years ago and kind of rediscovered in doing research for this. But she actually like went and had sex with her husband in a lab just to like see what it was like. Um, and she was like, yeah, it was super awkward and not great. And it was cold. And um, like it was fine. Like. They had sex, but they were just like, this was some of the mo weirdest sex we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm very hung up on it being cold. I'm imagining like one of those stainless steel like morgue tables. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I think for them, there was like at least like not people standing in the room while they were doing it. So... I don't know. The, yeah, the idea of people literally standing in the room. <laughs> really close to you. Anyway. The most influential of these researchers who some of you might have heard of because there was a TV show about them um, was William Masters and Virginia Johnson. William Masters was a gynecologist who began conducting research on human sexuality at Washington University in St. Louis in the 1950s. 
Virginia Johnson, um, she had only briefly studied sociology at Washington University, and um, she had little formal scientific training when she answered the ad Masters had placed in the paper looking for a research assistant. They later married in 1971 and then divorced in 1992, but they remained scientific collaborators for their whole lives. So under the auspices of the blandly named Reproductive Biology Research Foundation, uh, (laughs) I just, I I feel like, yeah, I love it. I love it. Welcome to our sex lab. (laughs) This is the sex lab. I guess you can't call it that. No. Um... Under the auspices of the blandly named Reproductive Biology Research Foundation, Masters and Johnson invited 287 married heterosexual couples to come into the lab and either have sex with each other or masturbate or both. Um, Masters said that he screened out, quote, all individuals with sociosexual aberrancy, end quote, aberrancy. I don't know. I think Uh, it's aberrancy. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, also, the vast majority of the participants worked at the university. Um, so we can assume that, like the subjects of Catherine Davis's study, they were also well-off, well-educated, and white. Does that also mean you'd have to, like, see them around campus after? I do have lots of questions about that. It just, it seems, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess that's kind of true though of a lot of sociological studies in general like you make people do weird things but because they're like students then you see them again i don't know that seems like a bad plan little billy in my in my 102 class definitely electrocuted the person behind the window right that's exactly what i was that's exactly what i was just thinking and i can't stop thinking about it while i'm lecturing yep yep in any case uh speaking of the logistics Um, how did this work? Basically, the researchers would hook up participants to machines that tracked their heart rate and blood pressure, um, which is basically a lie detector test. Uh, and then they would also record a video of the participants having sex. And then later they would watch the video and use it to make up-close observations about the body's physiological reactions. Um, if you want to learn more about how all of that worked, you can either watch the TV show um, or you can uh, read the book Bonk by Mary Roach. Uh, and she has some great descriptions of how they got uh, up close and personal with people's genitals, um, which, as Anna noted in a note, did include essentially a dildo with a camera on the end of it, among other things. <laughs> so now along with Really pioneering this lab-based approach to sex research, Masters and Johnson made a lot of important discoveries. They completely toss out the idea that women's sexuality is somehow categorically different from men's. So, you know, instead they observe that people, regardless of gender, go through what they call the sexual response cycle, moving through stages of excitement, plateau, orgasm, and resolution. They also disproved Freud's old idea that women have inferior clitoral orgasms and superior vaginal orgasms by demonstrating that they are physiologically the same process. (laughs) It's just an orgasm, man. (laughs) Um, But as Allison Spurgus notes, they were still mostly interested in understanding heteronormative sex. Not only did they focus their study on straight, white, married people, but they also almost exclusively studied penis and vagina sex. 
Layla's making the hand sign. I can't, you can't do that on the video while we're trying to have a serious podcast. <laughs> well, everyone listening, everyone listening to this is now also doing the hand sign. So, especially if they're driving, <laughs> don't do that if you're driving, guys. On so many levels that that hands attended too. Focus. So as Allison puts it, quote. They believed that women's sexuality should be liberated primarily so that women can fulfill their naturally ordained reproductive duties to procreate and mother. This theme of sexual liberation as a means towards a heteronormative and gender reductive end would occur again and again over the next several decades in sex therapy discourse through today, end quote. Of course. I just, this... This whole, this is another one of these podcasts where we're just like, everything's the fault of the Victorians. <laughs> they We're just like having a giant Victorian hangover. Uh, yeah, it's just weird because it does seem like there are in certain senses, like, especially with Masters and Johnson, like some sort of like progress in, you know, tossing out the idea that women's sexuality is inherently different than men's, but then they still kind of conclude that with saying women doing reproductive duties also like it's like they just can't completely throw the victorians out yeah it's like the monkey on their back (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's like we could think they're they're more willing to kind of take what turns women on like on its own terms but at the yeah. end of the day they're answering the same question that victorians are is which is like how can we make sure that people enjoy sex so that they have more babies yeah like yeah that's the that seems like the big overarching theme that continues yeah. to come up is is basically like yeah if people it's it's good for women to enjoy sex because that way they will want to have more of it and that way we will have more babies in the world Uh, So this way of doing sex research um, by closely examining physiological responses to sex continued through the 20th century and into the 21st century. Uh, The gadgets themselves got a little fancier, and by the 1970s, it became common for sex researchers to use something called a plethysmograph, which measures blood flow to a particular part of the body. Uh, There are plethysmographs, I did so well the first time, I messed up the second time, uh, that study, like, other parts of the body, but they're now, I think, mostly associated with sex research. As you might expect, for the purposes of sex research, they come in a couple of different forms. Uh, Penile and vaginal. Uh, The penile plethysmograph is just a little loop that goes over the penis, and the vaginal plethysmograph is a tampon-shaped device that is inserted Um, For those of you who are extra curious about these devices and how they work, uh, we'll include some photos or a link um, in the show notes from uh, Queen's University, Queen's University's Sexuality and Gender Lab. By the first decade of the 21st century, these plethysmographs had become the main way that researchers studied sexual arousal. They were the main tool used in a study published in 2004 by Dr. Meredith Chivers, which has come to define sex research for the last two decades. In A Sex Difference in the Specificity of Sexual Arousal, Chivers and her co-authors describe an experiment in which they hooked up men and women to plethysmographs and showed them a variety of film. 
Some of the films were pornographic, some showed naked people walking or doing everyday tasks, and some depicted animals having sex. Along with measuring the physiological responses from participants, researchers also asked them to rate how turned on they felt. And here's what they found. Men tended to say that they were turned on in the same instances where the plethysmograph indicated arousal, but the same wasn't true for women. In particular, there were a bunch of different instances when women said they were not aroused, but plethysmographic data indicated that they were, at least based on physiological markers. According to this study, women were physiologically turned on by almost everything, (laughs) but were incredibly unaware of it. Researchers eventually end up calling this discordant desire. I studied this in human sexuality when I was a psych major. And it's taught, this is taught as like fact, as like a way to uh, like basically support the idea that men and women are different. Yeah. This is like deep into the culture, even as like, as happens with scientific research, like Shivers and her associates have like kind of tried to now pull back and be like, well, this is actually harder to replicate. Well, maybe we could use different measurements. Well, we didn't mean for it to come off this way. We didn't mean for it to be sexist. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, This study spread like wildfire through the popular science press. Uh, We will link to some of the articles in the show notes. There's a lot. It's definitely one of those don't read the comments situations, too. I will just say that. (laughs) Heads up. (laughs) And this idea that uh, women are discordant is still central to sex research today. Um, And frankly, it has led scientists to some pretty distressing conclusions. Uh, Allison talked with me about this topic as well, so I'm going to let her take it from here. This research is put out there and it's like, oh my God, women are discordant. And then it's always at the end of the article, it's like, and this is probably a, like an evolutionary defense against injuries that a woman might re- might receive during rape. Like, And so then that becomes what is called the, prep- the preparation hypothesis. And it's this idea that, well, women have evolved this way um, and it's a protective, it's a defense mechanism because of the problem of cave rape, you know, where women had to, there there had to be some kind of biological thing to protect women's vaginas against injury. That is the main argument that's used for, for many, many, many years. So evolutionary psychology is just kind of like brought in through the back door and there's never any deep discussion of, I mean, A, why are we using this technique and what do we expect to get out of it with this technology? And B, if there is this discordance, like why might that be the case beyond these just like evolutionary kinds of reasons, or what are I mean, or just what are other ways to study women's sexuality? Um, yeah. Why not listen to what women say about their desire <laughs> rather than like comparing it against this, you know, this uh, supposedly objective measure? I just think it plays on these certain kinds of tropes about hysteria, about the feminine neuroses. Yeah from kind of the worst parts of Freud, but then also explained, you know, too often early on in these very evolutionary psychology ways. I had put a note in the script about how now we were going to have a 20-minute rant about evolutionary psychology. 
Uh, evolutionary psychology is the worst. For folks out there who have the joy of, of not hearing about evolutionary psychology, uh, it often ends up in this place where it's saying, well, we evolved to think this way because, and usually this way is some very, like, heteronormative thing. Um, and uh, because that was how they had to do it in caveman times. Yeah. But it's also it also serves as, in this instance of talking about uh, cave rape, is that men are so sexually aggressive because it is inherently part of who they are biologically, psychologically, and that is just the way that it is. And I mean, that's really dangerous um, when we're talking about present day rape culture in normalizing aggression being a part of sex for men. It's a sciencey way of saying boys will be boys. It's, yeah. it's a sciencey way of saying well, we just have to teach men to be less aggressive or, well, we have to teach women to protect themselves from men because they're going to be aggressive no matter what we do. I mean, I, the entire field of evolutionary psychology is pretty, pretty fucking bogus, actually. I mean, it's just built on all of these assumptions about how ancient humans behaved and the people who actually study that will tell you that there's very little we can actually conclude about that from the evidence we have, which is, you know, several thousand year old bones and cave paintings and things of that nature. Isn't that why Jordan Peterson only eats meat? <laughs> I think Jordan well, Peterson only eats meat for reasons that are specific to, to Jordan <laughs> Peterson well, and what he has his whole thing going on. But I think that's what he tells people. <laughs> This re reminds me that one of the most popular ways that Evo Psych has, like, hit the popular consciousness is things like a keto diet. Because the mm -hmm. keto diet yeah. is basically evolutionary psychology bullshit. Where yeah, they say, paleo, well, and like, yeah, paleo diets, things like that. Where the idea basically is eat like a caveman because that's how we're evolved to eat. Um, which, like all these other things, is based on absolutely nothing. Ah, uh, yes, those cavemen who went to the grocery store to get their grass-fed meat. <laughs> like, if you're going to eat, like, a caveman, aren't you eating mostly, like, root vegetables and, like, like yams? I mean, isn't that... <laughs> I think, I do think paleo diets involve, like, a lot of nuts and berries. We can't go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> we can't talk about Jordan Peterson for the rest of this episode. <laughs> I really thought he was going to die when he, like, went to Russia and was like in rehab and was only eating meat and he did that interview where he just looked like the fucking crypt keeper <laughs> no Anna that's just his face he looks so he was like he wasn't the crypt keeper sweaty though, he was really sweaty he wasn't like dry and dusty like the crypt keeper he looked meat like he was good meat sweats he looked just constant meat sweats <laughs> yeah he looked like he had been like soaking in juice for like Meat several juice. days <laughs> pulling us back just a little bit uh <laughs> the other thing i want to toss out here that that allison's quote um gets at is there it, it along with it like all these baked in ideas about male aggression that are quite horrifying there are also lots of baked in ideas about like women lie or women are like 
Madonna whore complex stuff. Uh, like women are really super sexual, but they're repressed. Uh, and you're they're really sexy, but they don't know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the all the various ways that society has tried to reconcile both like female purity and also women are evil sex monsters. One more thing that uh, Allison talks about is the way that these ideas have made it into popular sex um, therapy, um, particularly for women who see themselves as having low desire. The idea is that, well, since women have discordant desire, they probably have desires they are not aware of, and through practice and mindfulness, they can find a way to tap into that desire. Uh... And that's not inherently bad. Like, if you aren't sure what turns you on and you want to spend some time thinking about it, like, do it. It sounds like a great way to pass the time, Um, especially when we're all stuck indoors and can't do anything else. Um, But like a lot of self-help out there, uh, especially self-help directed at women, it can get uh, pretty icky and prescriptive pretty quickly. Um, so here's what Allison had to say about that. It starts to travel under the sign of like self-care. <laughs> so it's like, right. you're supposed to do this. You should do this. Like, so it's very insidious. You know, it's it's almost like this is going to be good for, like, it's good for you, but it's also good for your relationship. It's it's going to be good for your family. It's good for men. Hey, maybe you'll even be able to save heterosexuality itself. You'll be able to save the planet. Like, it's just, you know, like, be a happy woman. Be a happy sexual woman. And, like, it's good for you to do that. So it, I think it really feeds into a lot of these very kind of old ideas about that feminists have been theorizing for a long time about compulsory sexuality, compulsory heterosexuality, mm-hmm. um, and compulsory femininity, to be a good feminine subject, this is what you will do, and it'll be good for your for you too. I think we are definitely seeing like a huge uptick in the kind of like sexual wellness influencer <laughs> economy or whatever that that like Allison says this idea that like um, it's within your power to like discover your own desire and sexuality, and if you do that and buy these crystal dildos or whatever or this this candle that smells like uh what if paltrow's vagina <laughs> then you're enacting all of the like good and laudable things about being a woman you're like a fully realized human being now that you have finally like um unrepressed yourself and are are comfortable talking about sex in public or whatever or posting about it on your Instagram um, and that this is this is like tied to specifically like wellness culture and like this will make you healthy which is again just another 19th century idea about if you have the right kind of sex and you do the right thing then you will it will contribute to your health and your morality and you will be an ideal woman well I don't know about crystal dildos but I did download this app. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And its tagline is grow your confidence, get in the mode, and explore your sexual self. <laughs> so I had to take this like kind of like intake questionnaire, which read a lot to me like one of those like bullshit 
personality tests, <laughs> but for sex. Of and it starts with uh, discover who you are sexually. Answer a few questions to find out your sexual persona and personalize your journey. Um, I won't explain the, like, go through every question, but there are lots of questions on there about, like, how self-critical are you? Do you have intrusive thoughts during sex and stuff like that? Um, I was not expecting the results to come out as planets and astronomy type results, but my result was uh, I'm an exoplanet and it says that exoplanets are mysterious. We're still exploring all the ways they're wonderfully distinct. They may not live in the spotlight like the sun, but their discovery is what really sets them apart. Uh, I found the whole planet in astronomy thing to be like, the whole thing feels like it's pulling on, of course, wellness culture, but also pulling on those personality tests that people use to like screen out employees and shit. And then um, pulling on kind of the astrology that has made its way into feminism, certain brands of feminism. Um, so it's like, it's trying to pull on all of these different cultural trends but I, I did. I downloaded this app. I took the test and I did it for this episode. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, so one of the things also that happens here is, you know, there's there's this trope that goes back forever about like women being mysterious and women's like sexuality yeah. being mysterious and unknowable. And and also controlled by the heavenly body. Right. And also control. You're yeah. right. <laughs> and yeah. The the way and this happens this has happened in a few different ways in in this like twenty first century version of uh, sex research where like they take something that's an old and icky idea and then they use it and they say they like change the tone of it so that it feels empowering so this is like yeah it's using the same women are mysterious language but it's being like you're a mysterious planet no I'm a dead moon <laughs> I am a cold dead moon. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those fucking ice asteroids in the Oort cloud, just kind of cruising along, real dark, can't see anything, cold, icy, frigid. <laughs> I just have to say, though, that, like, the exoplanet thing, like, oh, you're you're not the star, you're not in the spotlight like the sun. The sun is the spotlight, and I'm just going to say the only reason we even know about exoplanets <laughs> is because they go in front of their own sun and block it out, and that's how we know they're there. <laughs> so just, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I think your point is right. Uh, it uses, you know, m- idea of being mysterious, my sexuality, I guess mine specifically in this case. <laughs> Being mysterious, but then also something that needs to be explored and discovered, which is like, I don't know, we talk about that a lot when we're talking about like, modern science and its investigation into nature and places they shouldn't be. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also to like, and another way to loop this back to the Victorians, uh, as... As Allison says, a lot of this is about sort of upholding heteronormativity. Um, so much of the the sex therapy that she talked with folks about is basically focused on like p- 
penetrative heterosexual sex and and about like making women more comfortable with a very particular sex act that is like considered definitionally sex by a lot of people. One of the things her book is about is about like she had all these surveys with women who have low desire and like the sort of plot twist of her of her study is that almost all of these women like have a rich fantasy life but they just didn't like the sex they were having with their partners but they considered <laughs> but they considered themselves as either currently or in the past having had low desire huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry and it's just like surprise the problem was uh heterosexism all along i think that's a great place to end this episode (laughs) yes to be quite honest excellent and if you liked this episode today please leave us a rating and a review on apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us if you have questions about any of the topics we discussed, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read articles and essays, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depo- depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at @LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at, at @LadyXScience. Bye.